Hey, it's Guy here with an important reminder that our first ever How I Built This virtual summit is right around the corner. From May 24th to the 27th, we're bringing you inspiring conversations with some incredible entrepreneurs. You can learn how to build and lead a team with Brene Brown, how to get the word out about your business with Gary Vee, channel your creativity with Adam Grant, and find power in community with Rashad Robinson. Also, each night, I'll be hosting conversations about innovation and marketing and how to make an impact with some of your favorite guests from the show, like Sint Marshall, Sal Khan, Sadie Lincoln, Tristan Walker, and many, many more. If you're ready to build a better future and make connections with other people who want to do the same, then this summit is for you. You can learn more about it and get tickets at summit.npr.org. Thank you to GoDaddy, the presenting sponsor of this year's summit, and to our supporting sponsors, Dell Technologies and Bulldog Online Yoga. And I cannot wait to see all of you there. What did that mean? What did the recession mean for a restaurant like 11 Madison Park at that time? For us, it, it hit us really hard. We tried to operate at a four-star level. Like we had f- so many meetings where we said, hey, we lost money, like huge amounts. I mean, we had nights where we had four guests in the restaurant. From NPR, it's How I Built This show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on today's show, how Daniel Hume dropped out of school at age 14 and went on to become the head chef and owner of the top-ranked restaurant in the world. When a company's entire business model isn't working, it may be time to pivot. We've told countless stories of pivots on this show, from seventh generation going from mail-order catalog to manufactured products, to headspace shifting from meditation events to meditation on an app. Pivots usually happen out of necessity, because without the pivot, the company might not survive. But what happens when you make a pivot, a huge pivot, when business is going well, when people actually love what you're doing? Well, that's what we plan to explore on the show today. And the business we're going to talk about, it's not the type of business we usually profile on this show, but in some ways, it's one of the most typical businesses there is, because it's a restaurant. Except for the better part of the past decade, It's been harder to score a table at this restaurant, 11 Madison Park in New York, than almost any restaurant in the U.S. Its owner, Daniel Hume, is considered one of the greatest chefs on earth. In fact, his restaurant has actually been named the world's greatest. There are Pinterest boards and Instagram accounts dedicated to Daniel Hume's dishes, like his diamond cut of turbot topped with scales fashioned from baby zucchini. It's a restaurant famed for its foie gras torchon, duck with daikon and plum, and smoked sturgeon cheesecake with caviar. There are diners who travel from Europe and Asia just to try these things. 
A few weeks ago, Daniel Hume reached out to us to talk about a momentous decision he was about to make. And he wanted to talk about it on the show. So while we don't ordinarily focus on news on How I Built This, today's episode has some news. Because on June 10th, when 11 Madison Park reopens for dining after being closed for more than a year due to the pandemic, the restaurant will no longer serve food made from animals. 11 Madison will become vegan, an entirely plant-based menu. Now, to understand how big a deal this is in the food world, imagine Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers leaving the NFL to play flag football. Out of the 135 Michelin three-star restaurants on Earth, not a single one is vegan. Chefs working at the highest levels rely on cream, butter, bones, duck fat, and pretty much anything from an animal to create their celebrated dishes. But something happened to Daniel Hume over the past year. The pandemic changed his life. It changed the way he thinks about food and, most importantly, the planet. When his restaurant closed its doors in March of 2020, Daniel quickly converted 11 Madison into a commissary kitchen that prepared hundreds of thousands of free meals for people struggling to make ends meet in New York. This past year, he faced the prospect of personal bankruptcy, the death of friends, and the furloughing of his entire team. He even contracted COVID himself. But as he tells it, this year also injected a vital sense of urgency into his life. And he decided there's no going back to the way things were before the pandemic. But before any of this happened, Daniel Hume was honing his craft in San Francisco and Europe, learning how to be one of the world's great chefs. He grew up in Zurich, Switzerland, and had no real interest in food as a kid, even though, he says, his mom was a great home cook. Yeah, she was fantastic. My mom is, uh, was half French and half Italian. She absolutely loved to be in the kitchen and to go to the markets. And uh, I didn't learn so much about the cooking part, mm -hmm. but I learned a lot about the importance of the best ingredients, like going to a farm and picking up the lettuces and then going home and washing these lettuces. Yeah. We, I grew up very humble. You know, we would eat meat only on the weekends. Hmm. So there was this real uh, respect for the ingredients and for the meat as well. And then, of course, we would use every part, make a soup from the bones and so forth. So that was a really great lesson just to use every part of it. And what about your dad? I, he was an architect. So, I mean, was he? Yeah, definitely a more difficult relationship. Growing up, it seemed like nothing was ever quite good enough. You know, I wasn't hmm. good enough in school. I wasn't doing enough homework. I wasn't doing enough work at home to help out my mom. Uh, you know, early on, I started uh, running cross country. I was really good. Um, I was competing in the nationals and I even won the nationals twice. And uh, But um, it was always not quite good enough. Hmm. If I won, then... Maybe the best other ones weren't, maybe they were injured and they weren't, wow. you know, racing that day. And yeah. Hmm. And, and I read that you also got into cycling as a kid. I mean, you became like a really 
serious uh, competitive cyclists. I think like mountain bike racer, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So after running cross country, I eventually I discovered the bike and I would, well, first I would just go and uh, take my bike and I would, some days I would get up at 4 a.m. and I would ride the bike around like into the French part of Switzerland, like, and then back and I would come back home at like seven at night. So I was like gone for like hours and hours and hours. And so the sport actually, it was almost an escape from home. Uh, You know, I started racing local races and I was, you know, winning local races. And Hmm. uh, I went from the roads to mountain biking it became more and more serious. And when I was 14 years old, I had the opportunity uh, to join a team and actually to really pursue it as a professional career and, and sort of leave school behind. So you, you, at age 14, you left school, you dropped out? Yeah. Wow. You know, it's the, it was the best decision for me. Of course, it's now being a parent, thinking about my kids leaving school at 14 I would really be scared and I understand what my parents uh, were thinking at that time your your formal education ended essentially when you were 14 yeah it's a wild uh, idea I really only went to school for eight years I guess you left home you stopped living with your parents when you were 15 yeah why did you leave home You know, after I made the decision to be racing, I definitely didn't feel uh, welcome at home anymore. I I started having a girlfriend when I was 15. She was um, or is three years older than me and she had a place of her own. And so then we moved in or I moved in with her. Wow. And uh, I moved away from home. I guess... While you were training as a cyclist, you started to just work in restaurants as um, to, for, for money, I guess, initially, or, or was it out of interest? No, it was purely money at first. There is a um, well-known hotel in Zurich called the Hotel Borolak. And, uh, you know, I knocked at the door and I was... 16 years old and I asked if I could come and work and uh, the chef was a big uh, cycling fan Hmm. and so uh, he had a a soft spot for me and um, you know I was there just to get a paycheck but the chef really took me under his wing and taught me how to make a consomme and how to make a chicken (laughs) stock or butcher a chicken Hmm. or that was really um, such a gift. Did you have a natural interest in it? I mean, your mom obviously was a good home cook, but I mean, you were into cycling. Like when you got into the kitchen, was there an instant spark at all? Or, or is it just that this chef enjoyed talking about his craft? I um, definitely felt right at home in the kitchen, but I really didn't think of it as making it as a career, but I was I felt very fortunate. The chef almost became a little bit of a father figure at that time. And I made great friends as well. And so I, I felt very um, at home there. And, and by the way, you're still living with your girlfriend, who I think, I think when you were 18, you had your first child, right? Yeah, that's right. Wow. 
it sounds so, you know, stressful <laughs> yeah. and tough, but um, it was just a, such a beautiful time. We were so in love and uh, we had a baby and we, it felt like we were doing exactly what we wanted to do. And, and in a way, so many things were not very complicated. Mm. It was a very simple uh, but beautiful existence, but we were very happy. I guess, meantime, as you're training as a cyclist in sort of the mid, mid-90s, you kind of start to work at other restaurants, including some really high-end, like Michelin three-star restaurants, um, doing kind of the same thing, being in the kitchen and doing prep work? Well, I had a bad accident when I was 22 years old. Bad fall in a, in a mountain bike race. I was in the hospital for a few weeks. And, and then when I was in the hospital, I realized that I wasn't good enough to be one of the very, very world's best. Hmm. Very few people can actually make a real living just by cycling. Yeah. And I also realized that I started to have this deep love for cooking And I think there was one meal I had two years prior. It was at a restaurant called Freddy Girardet, also three stars. And um, there were probably about 25 chefs, all like in perfectly starched and pressed (laughs) uniforms with big hats. And uh, they were working so precisely and so calmly and so beautifully. And I think that kind of planted the seed. And I was in the hospital. I sort of was thinking, well, if I can't rise to the top in cycling, maybe I could in cooking. And uh, right after that, I found my way to first a two Michelin star restaurant and then a three Michelin star restaurant. And it became my new sport. I guess around the time when you decided to leave cycling and focus entirely on pursuing like a culinary career um your relationship with your girlfriend who's the the mother of your daughter justine um ended Mm -hmm. how did you cope with that it was hard um i was 25 and so at that time we were together for 10 years (laughs) it was just a you know very powerful relationship and um have a really great relationship today, but also we, I think we were also great parents. I think we just, you, you grow apart. And I think part of that also led me to eventually move to the US. It was just too painful to be around all the memories we have built in, in Zurich. So as you, as you kind of began to really pursue this culinary career, um, Clearly, you were you were getting better and better. How did you just gain the confidence of chefs? Did you um, was it like our our kind of the caricature of of a kitchen, like people shouting at you and throwing dishes at you, and mm-hmm. you like feeling um, humiliated? And just is that how you learned? I mean, there was definitely a lot of that, and it was pretty uh, an intense environment. People didn't really work together. People didn't really want each other to succeed. <laughs> And it was this really, really old school way. Like, for example, um, the chef always would go to the farm every morning Mm -hmm. by himself at like seven in the morning. We would arrive at eight 
And one time I was carrying garden peas and um, one fell down. And uh, on the way back, I stepped on it. And he saw that. I think in the three years that I was there, I think he never forgot that. He was so upset because he went every morning to get these garden peas. And he, every single piece from the tiniest morel to the tiniest peas was just so precious mm. to the point where we counted them. <laughs> it was extreme. Uh, it, was, it was a pretty extreme uh, environment. Yeah. Did you feel when you were, I mean, because you were one of what, 25 or 30 people inside that kitchen. Yeah. Did you feel when you looked around that it was different than when you looked around at your fellow cyclists? When you looked around at those other chefs, did you think, you know what, I think maybe I, I have the potential to be the best person here? I don't know if I thought that at that point. In the beginning, it was all about really learning the craft. I definitely felt that I had a gift to do the knife cuts, to make the sauces, to butcher the fish. But um, at that time, I just wanted to be the best at the craft. Yeah. I wanted to be the quickest. I wanted to be the cleanest. And during work, there wasn't really the time to, to write down much. Mm. So every night I would go to the room and I had my color pencils and I would draw out the dishes we cooked on that given day. and In like a journal? You would sketch out in a journal? I actually had these single pages with a round circle on it that resembled a plate. And I would, uh, you know, just say, okay, this is this fish cooked this and this way, this long, and we made the sauce this way. And so, I mean, I have thousands of these uh, still today. It's actually, I still work like this. Um, you sketch out colored pencils the dishes that you cooked yeah what were you doing that for back then just to memorize what we did but then what naturally happened was i would start drawing imaginary dishes like i would say oh what if we take the fish this way and then we put this tomato with it and this caper sauce or and so in my head i started to create these dishes and I was living with this elderly couple and on the weekend I would cook for them but it was really uh, an important process for me to start you know creating it's interesting because you you talk about the craft of being in the kitchen right and so is that what what you were doing early on like you're just getting really good at the fundamentals of cooking yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, there's a, a Miles Davis quote and he says, you have to learn the rules before you can break them. And I totally agree with that. And I think you need to sort of learn it from ground up before you can really start to branch out. Um, how, did you, how did you get your first job as a head chef where you were actually in charge of the whole kitchen? You know, it was like, it was kind of random. I saw this thing in a newspaper advertising small farm looking for a chef. And I applied and they called me back and it was a beautiful little inn on top of the mountain overlooking, you know, the Alps. And uh, it was a very humble restaurant cooking Swiss traditional food. At first, I just talked with the owner and... uh, 
he offered me the job and I took it. I was just happy to be there. And uh, I was cooking the dishes without changing the, the menu. It was sort of an honest, simple restaurant with ingredients from the farms around. So like like venison kind of, I'm thinking like venison and white asparagus. Yeah, I think we definitely had venison in the game season. We had suckling pig and uh, I mean, they even had tripe on the menu and like, you know, veal liver and things like that. And and this is not a restaurant I'm imagining that is getting a lot of attention because it's, it's like in a tiny corner of Switzerland in the Alps, right? Yeah, it was hard to get to. We had like 12 to 20 guests, but then the owner was a lover of gastronomy and food. And so he would bring his friends. And then I started to cook a little bit more special dinners, things that weren't on the menu. And then people started like really loving some of the stuff. It all happened kind of quickly, so quickly that after six months, um, I was named Discovery of the Year and received a Michelin star. In, in six months after arriving. And, and, and yeah. I, mean, I think a lot of people know what that means. I mean, Michelin, the Michelin Guide is certainly for cooks is like, it's like the Oscars. Yeah, I wasn't prepared at all. And looking back, it was like I had no repertoire of my own dishes. Now all of a sudden there was this bright light on me. And there were a lot of expectations. It was busy. Now we did like 35 guests a night. Journalists wanted to speak to me. Guests wanted to meet me and talk about the food. And I didn't really have much to say because I didn't really think about it that much yet. And I was overthinking everything. And the dishes were complicated. And uh, I wanted to impress. And I, I feel like I had to impress. And... Uh, it was a lot of pressure. And did you transmit some of that stress and pressure to the team? Would you get like angry? I mean, because you came up in kitchens where people were like, right, throwing things and shouting around. I mean, and I'm assuming you had to have maybe assimilated some of that behavior. I definitely, you know, I always feel that uh, when a chef is loud and yelling, it means that he's overwhelmed and um it's a weakness, absolute weakness. And that in my early days, I definitely felt myself in that position where I just, you know, was too overwhelmed. Everything was too much. And, and I definitely have yelled a few times at someone. I'm not proud of it. but Right. So, so you're working at this restaurant in Switzerland. You're getting a lot of attention. Um, and I mean, clearly you're like this sort of hot young chef. And... You got poached. You got recruited by a, a, a what the manager of a of a restaurant in San Francisco at uh, at the Canton Place Hotel, like reached out to convince you to come and work in the U.S. Yeah, he was. He he sort of twisted my arm um, because the place I was at actually in the winter it would snow so much that people actually couldn't drive up there, so it was closed for two months. And in those two months, he offered me to fly to San Francisco and visit him. And uh, I arrived and he was there at the airport, him personally, the GM of the hotel. I remember driving from the airport to downtown San Francisco and uh, everything felt so foreign, hmm. like everything, the, the way the buildings were built, the way the climate was, 
the smells, the it just felt like such a foreign place. And then he's like, we're going to go up to Napa Valley. I wanted you to meet Alice Waters. And we're going to eat at the French wow. Laundry. And we're going to go to the farmer's market in the ferry building. And for me, it, it didn't have any meaning. I didn't know about anything, <laughs> but I was excited to go on this journey. And, you know, I was just so blown away. I mean, the, the bounty and the beauty of California is breathtaking. And it felt that uh, in California, there was much more freedom in gastronomy and in having influences of different cultures. And uh, it just felt creative and, and it just felt like the place was really alive. So you, you moved to, to San Francisco, I think, I think it's around 2003, and you were still super young. I mean, you were like, like 27 years old around then. Yeah. And I mean, even at that time... I mean, San Francisco was was an important food city. Uh, maybe not not like it, it is today, but but this restaurant where you went to um, Campton Place, I mean, it was also very well regarded at the time. Yeah, well, it, it was an important restaurant that people were paying attention to. They just uh, remodeled their dining room, and uh, yeah, luckily critics uh, would come, and luckily they liked what we were doing. I think. Michael Bauer, who was a critic of San Francisco Chronicle at the time, was a really influential critic. I think he, at the time he wrote about you, the newspaper gave you four stars. He wrote, the brightest star to land in Northern California since Thomas Keller opened the French Laundry, um, which is pretty amazing. Were you, did, did you, were you intimidated by, by some of those other chefs? Did you, because you were still pretty young, or did you start to feel a little bit more confident? You know, I didn't really feel uh, confident. Uh, I was just trying to run the best possible uh, restaurant. You know, resources are limited, especially when you're coming up because you don't have, you know, the budgets that big restaurants yeah. have. So in the beginning, it's you have to work like, I mean, I worked six, seven days a week. I worked every day and, and long days and I felt honestly overwhelmed every day, and I didn't really know how to get to the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, so the restaurant is getting a lot of attention, and a well-known restaurateur who we've had on the show, Danny Meyer, he hears about you, and he approaches you to come work at his restaurant in New York, 11 Madison Park. Yeah. He's trying to revamp it. And how did he approach you? Well, he had a few of his people come through Campton Place and they, you know, wanted to meet me. And eventually Danny Meyer came for a dinner. And and so then I, I started to talk to Danny in a little more serious way. We probably spoke for probably 10 months back and forth. And Wow. And uh, he would check in with me, and, and eventually I would go out to New York. I, I think I went to New York eight times before I made the decision to take on this position. So this was not a done deal. You, you did not have any intention of leaving Campton Place. You, you were not interested in another job. He was really very much pursuing you. Yeah, he, was, he really was, and even to the point where... I felt like he was really invested in me <laughs> and uh, he didn't put any pressure on me. He knew that the decision took time um, and he, he gave me all the time in the world. And 
But I think one thing, you know, the restaurant at that time was a brasserie. Yeah. With 200 seats. It's a huge. And that was really daunting. Yeah. Daunting and almost like something I, I couldn't really imagine. And he said that, you know, I want to make this in one of the great dining rooms in the world. And, uh, you know, and I've heard that before. And so many people say that. But what it takes is, is just such a big commitment. And I really needed to trust him. I knew that there was a lot at stake because I also saw chefs coming to New York who even came with big names. Yeah. I mean, look at Alain Ducasse, I think Robichon, really, Gordon Ramsay, some of the biggest chefs came to New York and failed. And the city was done with them. And they never got a second chance. When we come back after the break, how Daniel's chance to run the kitchen at 11 Madison Park brought him to the pinnacle of success in the culinary world. But how reaching that goal wasn't quite what he expected. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. Support for How I Built This comes from 3M, from helping drive vaccine and therapy development with advanced purification technologies to developing an adjuvant that helps boost vaccine effectiveness. The research scientists at 3M are delivering innovative healthcare solutions to help us today and prepare us to better tackle what's next. Learn more at 3M.com slash improving lives. 3M science applied to life. This message comes from NPR sponsor Checker. Want to diversify your workforce and change the future? Studies show that employment is the number one factor in reducing recidivism. Fair Chance Hiring provides a path to employment for 70 to 100 million qualified Americans. Choose Checker for fast, accurate, and fair background checks that give people a fair shot at their futures. Learn more at checker.com slash NPR. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So it's 2006, and Daniel Hume moves to New York as the new executive chef at Danny Meyer's fine dining restaurant, 11 Madison Park. And from the very beginning, Daniel finds that running a top kitchen in New York City is even more intense than he'd imagined. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, People always have a hard time with change. And, uh, you know, he was serving seafood plateaus and steak frites. And uh, when I started removing some of these staples, we would receive letters and this restaurant is going to close. It's never going to succeed. And and then the size of the restaurant, it wasn't like a 20 or 30 seat restaurant. Yeah. But... I think one of the things I somehow realized early was that as a chef, you can only be successful if you can also manage your business. Mm. And only if the restaurant makes money, there is a future for it. Uh, A lot of people try to allure you with this very wealthy guy who wants to have this restaurant and it's sort of like his passion project. 
these things never, ever, ever work out because people get bored of it. It only works if it makes money. Yeah. So your charge at the restaurant was to, you were kind of given a, a blank slate to play with. And at the same time you joined, around the same time you joined, Danny Meyer brought in a new general manager, a young guy named Will Gadara. And he kind of partnered the two of you up and said, all right, uh, Will would be the front of the house. You'll be the back of the house. Go do your thing. And did you and Will instantly click? Yeah. You know, we both, I think, benefited from our different experiences. Will grew up in America, in New York, worked with Danny Meyer. And Danny Meyer, you know, is well known for for his hospitality. So Will brought a lot to the table. And I, I think hospitality is arguably more important than even the food. I think the food maybe brings the guest to the restaurant, but then the hospitality makes makes the guest uh, return and return. So we kind of really intertwined. Uh, yeah, we started to really uh, think in a very similar way. I think one of the earliest reviews that the two of you together received was from a writer for the New York Observer. And she gave the restaurant three and a half out of four stars. So it was pretty great. In this review, the writer, her name is uh, Moira Hodgson, called you a star. But in the review, she said the dining room needed, and this is a quote, a bit of Miles Davis. I mean, it was a good review, three and a half out of four stars. I'm imagining you're happy, but a bit of Miles Davis. What did that mean? I mean, first of all, the review was way too generous because I don't think we were at that level at that point. But um, yes, we were happy with the review and we were pretty perplexed about more Miles Davis. We didn't exactly know what she meant. But we were intrigued by it, and uh, we started to read about Miles. And we made a list of 11 words that we saw most commonly used to describe Miles. And uh, some of the words were cool, endless reinvention, forward-moving, light, innovative, and so forth. And we look at the list of words and we're like, wow, this is exactly what we need. And in particular, cool was a great word because fine dining restaurants at that time, you know, didn't really feel that cool. They felt a little stuffy. And uh, Miles became the creative sort of inspiration for the restaurant. And there are pictures of Miles in the restaurant today. And there's the 11 words. And uh, even today, we always think about you know, these 11 words when we make big decisions. It's, it's I mean, amazing because, you know, this reviewer probably just wrote this line and turns out that, that her review had a huge impact. Uh, I mean, you guys took her words and absorbed them and thought, okay, let's see how we can be better. And you literally started listening to Miles Davis music because <laughs> you wrote it needed a bit of Miles Davis. I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, eventually we invite, like maybe six years later, we invited her to dinner because we were also exactly saying the same thing. It's like, does she have any idea what that meant for us? And she didn't. Wow. And she was just blown away. You know, Miles had such, he created so many different genres of jazz. He constantly reinvented himself. He took risks, he was innovative, but he also, you know, knew the rules. He was an incredible artist. Meantime, you're getting more attention, and the restaurant eventually got three stars, a three-star review from the New York Times. This is a great review, and I imagine it was it was getting busier and busier. And 
then September 2008, uh, Lehman Brothers collapsed. Um, what what did that mean? What did the recession, the beginning of the financial crisis mean for a an expensive fine dining restaurant like 11 Madison Park at that time? It was really tough, especially, you know, we, we were sort of not the most expensive, but we were also, we were on a path to get from three stars to four stars. And so we operated at a higher expense of what a restaurant usually would. And these are New York Times stars, we should be clear, because Michelin is three yes. stars maximum, but New York Times is four stars maximum. You're right. And so you were thinking, we want to get a four-star review from the New York Times, because that's obviously... Yeah. Yes. So we put so much behind this effort and, and financial, too. We tried to operate at a four-star level, but we didn't charge the four-star prices. That's just how this game works. And then the crisis happens. And so the only time people now would go out and spend money was to a restaurant that was established or to a restaurant that was simple and casual. Yeah. For us, it, it hit us really hard. Like we had a f so many meetings in those six months where we said, hey, we lost money every month, like huge amounts. I mean, we had nights where we had four guests wow. in the restaurant. Hmm. And, and I guess uh, around that time, you also start to notice that the food critic for the New York Times, Frank Bruni, he was, he was a critic at, at that time. He's now a columnist. Uh, that you start to see him having dinner at the restaurant. Um, <laughs> presumably, you were thinking this, like, this could be our opportunity to earn our fourth star. Yeah, that's right. But we knew that he wouldn't give four stars to a restaurant that had like six customers. Yeah. So on nights that we thought he would come, we would invite a bunch of people, friends, regular guests. So the restaurant felt full <laughs> when he came. Um, and you and you guys were, I mean, this is restaurants do this. They've got all kinds of tricks to recognize. Even if a reviewer wears a disguise or, yeah. I don't know, or like a mustache or whatever. Yes. You knew who he was. We knew who he was. And, you know, we would have like, all kinds of phone numbers that he would use to make the reservations. We knew how he looked like. We had all kinds of tricks. I don't know if we always caught him or spotted him, but at times we did. And so we saw him coming back and uh, he had the meal. He called the next day. They said, oh, he will have some questions about the menu. They want to come take pictures of the dining room. The review will come out in four days. And uh, I think it was August 2009, the review came out and it was a glowing review. And uh, we never had an empty seat uh, since that day. In that review, he wrote, the restaurant now ranks among the most alluring and impressive restaurants in New York. Four stars, which is, I mean, they give maybe one four-star review a year, if that. Yeah. And... Uh, that that was it. That, at that point, it was impossible to get a reservation, or not impossible, but the restaurant was just packed every night. Yeah, it was really, it was unbelievable. It was uh, overnight, it changed. And, uh, you know, and there were other reasons later on to kind of uh, keep fueling that fire, but um, that definitely lasted for a while. I want to ask you about 
the food at 11 Madison Park. There are Pinterest pages like devoted to your plates and photos all over the internet. And if you look at any plate that you serve, it looks like a piece of modern art. Did you start to look at, to think about your plates as, as art, as artwork? You know, I, I thank you uh, for talking so nicely about the food. But, um, you know, art has definitely guided my creative process. My dream was to cook with very few ingredients, mm. but say a lot. And, you know, in the beginning, it was much more complicated. There were seven different things, 10 different techniques on one plate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was always kind of a cover-up. It's easier to add things. But if you only have two things on the plate, then everything has to be perfect. And I think only four years ago, for the first time, I created a dish. It was a celery root braised in a pig's bladder. Mm. And on the plate, there's the celery root and there is a white circle of celery root puree. And it's sort of just these two white circles. And for the first time in my life, I felt like that I achieved it. I, I read about how you thought about that dish, the celery root dish, um, as, as sort of a template for how you would think about all of the recipes that you would create in the future. Yeah, that's right. This created sort of four fundamentals of our cuisine. And what it was, it was the dish was delicious. Mm. And delicious is something that is instant. You don't need to think about it. Uh, the second thing, the dish had to be beautiful. Third thing, it has to be creative. Every dish has to move food forward in a way, have a different technique used differently or have a flavor combination you might never had. And then the last one is intentional. Hmm. The dish needs to have intention and it could be as simple as two ingredients grown next to each other or it could be a childhood memory. It could be inspired by an artist but it needs to have a reason for the dish to exist. And these four elements were present in that very first dish. Wow. Can you give me another example mm -hmm. of, of that, of, of another dish you made that fulfilled those four requirements? Um, okay. For example, we made this slow-cooked halibut with different types of radishes and... Uh, it sort of kind of looks like a Rothko painting, actually. Wow. Um, it's this beautiful halibut. And it has this veil, this daikon sheet veil of pickled daikon. And underneath are sort of all kinds of different colored radishes. Uh, and it comes with this uh, orange blossom uh, sauce. And uh, it's delicious. It's beautiful. It's creative with the way the radish is cut. And uh, it is intentional. It makes sense. It's rooted in classic cooking. And so I knew that if these four things are present in future dishes, then now we have 
created a language. So that was really a crucial moment after 25 years of cooking. As the restaurant became more and more well-known and received international acclaim, the two of you decided to start your own business. You both kind of wanted to go out and branch out on your own, and, and Danny Meyer basically said, listen, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for you guys to compete against your own restaurant. Um, and eventually he, he basically suggested that you buy him out, that you buy out 11 Madison Park, and you and, and Will became the owners. Yeah, it was incredible. We were ambitious and we wanted to win and we wanted to create the greatest experience for our guests ever. And, and we're young. Don't forget, we're like 30 years old. And I think a month after you bought the restaurant from Danny Meyer, you were awarded your third Michelin star. You are now a Michelin three-star restaurant. There are only, at this point, maybe, what, 12, 13 of them in the United States. Yeah, for sure. It's unbelievable. It's hard to believe. But uh, yes, I mean, there is a whole... People have these lists of must-visit restaurants, and now we, we were on that list. As, as your partnership with Will, now your business partners, as it began to grow, um, you had 11 Madison, and then you also had a partnership with a, a group that ran the Nomad Hotels, and, and you started opening restaurants in their hotels in New York and in, in Las Vegas. Um, did it mean you were spending less time in the kitchen at 11 Madison and more time sort of being a brand ambassador? Yeah, I think it definitely uh, started to become more and more difficult to kind of fit everything, you know, in. And when you're starting to be pulled in a lot of different directions, it's harder to measure mm. your accomplishments. And so in a way, it's less satisfying as a chef, when you start having more success, you know, you're doing interviews and you're talking to guests and talking about other business opportunities. Sure. And, uh, and and presumably, I mean, Will is looking at his mentor, Danny Meyer, who's got an empire and, and understandably probably is thinking, we can do this too. We can build our own empire. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, many others have built these incredible empires and... Uh, I think in our partnership also uh, with Will, this is kind of when things started to be where we didn't always see eye to eye. Okay. And uh, I felt like a lot of these opportunities were taking my time away from the things I really wanted to do. And so I felt that when I looked at my schedule on a daily basis, I, I wasn't even fully in control of the schedule. Eventually, it was just clear that, you know, our incredible ride is coming to an end. Mm. And I think it felt at the end that maybe we were holding each other back mm. from what, what we really wanted to do. I mean, it, it's, it's amazing because the partnership, I mean, you guys were named the Food Innovators of the Year by the Wall Street Journal. The restaurant won the James Beard Award. I mean, you won every award by 2017. You were named the best restaurant on the planet by this famous list, the 50 best. Um, and yet... I think at that time, things really started to become very, very challenging, actually. Between the two of you? And, and for myself, actually. 
It was this goal that we had for so many years. It was an easy goal to explain. It was easy to get, and, and this is a rating that comes out on a yearly basis. And we were on that list for 10 consecutive years before we came number one. So we entered the list at number 50. And then, you know, year after year, we worked up, mostly moved up. So it was this sort of carrot in front of us. And I understood that that's what it was. I mean, it's, it's kind of ridiculous to say that there is a best restaurant in the world. Yeah. There isn't. There are many. But it definitely... Um, made us better it made us push harder but the moment you receive it well that moment you would imagine that's the greatest moment of your life Mm. but somehow it wasn't Um, because already leading up to it more and more opportunities came our way we were pulled in so many different directions and I realized that nothing in my calendar anymore was sort of things I wanted to do. <laughs> and I kind of had a, an anxiety attack. And I kind of felt, and I didn't really knew where I was going anymore. I mean, it sounds like you were, you've been awarded, you reached the highest levels of your profession. Yeah. But you were totally overwhelmed by everything going on around you. It sounds like you just like, you just wanted to like shut the door and shut the noise out. Absolutely. Yeah. I didn't even want to leave the house. Mm. There were all these things in the pipeline that I had absolutely no passion for. I knew that I couldn't continue down this path and, and I was holding back my partner who was there for me. And so that wasn't fair to him, you know, so we just had to have a heart to heart and, and sort of say, Hey, time has come to go our separate ways because we're holding each other back. When you guys, uh, you you did go your separate ways and and you retained ownership over 11 Madison Park and and bought him out. And I think it was finalized in January or February of 2020. Yeah. And March of 2020, the city shuts down. In fact, I interviewed Danny Meyer. Yeah. It's the last interview I did before the shutdown. Three days later, he announced the closure of all his restaurants. And that really, when Danny Meyer did that, that, was, that sort of everybody else followed suit. I mean, New York was, this, was the global epicenter of that pandemic in the spring of 2020. Yeah, it, it was, um, it felt like it, it happened overnight. And uh, we were busy until the last moment, until we closed. It was a Sunday night. You know, we said, oh, we're going to close for the next two weeks and uh, be safe and uh, (laughs) let's clean up the restaurant and we'll see each other soon. And uh, still till today, you know, most of that team, we haven't seen each other. Um, 11 Madison Park has had 200 employees at that time. Many of them were from all over the world. And of course, people had to go back to their countries, their visa expired. Everyone had sort of uh, figure out how how to survive. This team was working together. A lot of this team was together for 10, 12 years. And, um, you know, we were family. 
we went through so much together. And uh, at that one day, it was our last service, and uh, we closed the doors. And it's it's pretty um, it's devastating. When we come back in just a moment, how what happened during the pandemic totally changed how Daniel thinks about food, about business, and about the mission of his restaurant. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. Support for How I Built This comes from 3M, committed to protecting healthcare workers globally. 3M employee Chris knows that healthcare workers, like his daughter, may need to get up close to provide patient care. He's working hard to direct high performing personal protective equipment to hospitals and hotspots so she and nurses like her can be protected while caring for their patients. Hear their story at 3M.com slash improving lives. 3M Science, applied to life. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So the pandemic hits New York, and it hits hard. 11 Madison Park shuts down, and Daniel has to furlough his employees. And the city goes into lockdown. And after a few days in shock, Daniel starts to look around to see where he can volunteer to help. So he decides to go to soup kitchens. And uh, as I'm going through these different soup kitchens, I'm seeing they're all shutting down because they rely on volunteers who a lot of them are elderly who are now scared to come in. And so it's just the problem. It's just getting worse and worse in front of my eyes. I knew that I had this restaurant of a kitchen that now was empty. And I also saw the need for meals and the amount of people who are food insecure just rise to extreme levels. I mean, doubling. And so I felt somehow um, had the responsibility and had the ability to make a difference. You were, like so many people in New York, are thinking, how can I contribute? How can I help in some way? You had a kitchen yeah. and you had a staff. Yeah. And so two weeks from the day we... Uh, shut down the restaurant. We turned the lights back on at 11 Madison and we started producing meals. And uh, as we started doing the work and as we also, we went into these neighborhoods to give away the food and just seeing the situation and seeing how grateful everyone was. Mm. And it really, I think, you know, I, I saw New York that I didn't know. I spent times in neighborhoods I've never been to. You know, it it felt so good to be able to make a small difference. But how did you convince your team to come and work? I mean, weren't people were freaking out about safety? This is before we understood that masks could actually really protect us. And yeah. I have to imagine that a lot of employees were didn't want to come in to the kitchen. Yeah, it was even some of my strongest people. You know, maybe they have a family, maybe they have someone elderly at home. Yeah. They couldn't take the... It, it was eight people out of 200. Eight people came. Eight people came. And I remember being in that kitchen that morning and looking in everyone's eyes and everyone was, me included, full of fear. 
I mean, people were so scared walking down the street, being in the apartment building, in the staircase. You know, there was also early days. It was sad, like a good friend of mine who had the restaurant next door to me, Floyd Cardoz, he unfortunately died on COVID. Yep. So it was, um, you didn't really know what to make out of this virus, but... The fear kind of went away, not fully, but definitely a lot. You you were basically making catering-sized meals. You're, you're going from paper-thin slices of baby courgettes uh, to sheet pans of chicken roasting in the oven. Yeah, but you know that that was so beautiful. Like, I got reconnected with a part of food that I wasn't connected anymore. Hmm. And uh, sort of the food for nurture, giving these meals to people who, you know, are food insecure. And it, it was so uplifting and so beautiful. And it was a gift to me in the end because I was able to connect with food in a whole new way. You know, we have continued today still. Um, we've, we've cooked over one million meals out of the kitchen of 11 Madison Park wow. since March. It's been some of the most meaningful uh, work in food that I've done. Hmm. I, I know that you had raised some money from some sponsors to enable you to to run the commissary kitchen and, and to buy the food and, and to distribute it. But I mean, even so, the restaurant, right, 11 Madison was not making much revenue, wasn't, wasn't really serving food. Um, the costs of running a restaurant are very high. Were you at all worried about your financial situation? Absolutely. I mean, we we faced bankruptcy. You know, we had engaged bankruptcy lawyers wow. to understand what that means, what that would look like. It was a really, really scary time. You know, I personally, I owned a house that I had to sell just to figure it out. <laughs> But, you know, there's a great quote uh, by Helen Keller, and it goes, uh, life is a great adventure or nothing at all. And that quote was with me every single day. <laughs> and um, I moved to America with two suitcases, and there was something so liberating about that. And last year, in a way, gave me that same feeling. So you you started to think differently about your whole kind of life's purpose. I mean, I, I don't mean it in a, I'm not being critical, but I mean, you, you, you devoted your whole adult life to making food for, let's be honest, for rich people. Yes. Here you are, your kitchen is, you're making food for people in need. Did you start to think about, I don't know, what you were doing with your life and, and who you were serving? And did that experience of, of making simple food for people in need changed the way you thought about what you were doing? Yeah, I think uh, absolutely. I think that's why the whole thing started to feel a little bit empty, even reaching the highest, you know, honors in our industry. Yeah. At the same time, I have a deep love for cooking as art and as a performance in a beautiful space with a world-class team. And, and that obviously has its price yeah. as it does when you go to a Broadway show sure. or anything else. And I actually believe that that we can do uh, both. And I made a commitment to myself 
that we will never not cook meals for people in need. And we actually are going to take it even further. And when we do reopen the restaurant, we also made the commitment that part of the price of the reservation will go towards meals for people in need. And therefore, I'm very happy to continue to have a restaurant where food is celebrated and is an art form and a performance because that allows us to do the other thing. Daniel, as of this moment we're speaking, it's April of 2021, there are lots of high-end restaurants that are preparing to reopen. Some have reopened fine dining restaurants. You are planning to reopen 11 Madison. You have gone through, you know, life-changing experience over the last year. How are you thinking about it? There has been so much change. And I think, therefore, it will change the restaurant. I think we've all been able to take a step back and sort of reevaluate. And in a way, maybe be a little bit more thoughtful also about the impact to our surroundings and the way we have sourced our food, the way we're consuming our food, the way we eat meat, it is not sustainable. Yeah. And that is not a opinion. This is just a fact. So we decided that our restaurant will be 100% plant-based. So like, like no meat, no animal products. Yeah, we decided we have to put our creativity towards a plant-based diet. Wow. I, I think it's important, Daniel, to point out how, how sort of momentous this decision is, especially at your level, because I think there are just a tiny number of vegan restaurants on the planet with a single Michelin star and, n- and none with three Michelin stars, right? And I think, I mean, I, when I think of, about the tools of a chef, I mean, they're there are things like butter and, and cream and demi-gloss and sweetbreads. And, and you are not going to use or serve any of that anymore. You're, you're not going to serve anything from an animal at your restaurant. Yeah, that's correct. But I think the change will be in some ways subtle. Guests have never come to us to just eat a piece of steak or a lobster. They've always come to us to be on a journey and and for us to uh, tell a story. And so we want people to say in the end, oh my God, I can't believe they didn't use butter and cream. And in the flow of the money, we said, oh, this is sort of the moment uh, a caviar course used to be, or this is sort of the moment where braised meat would be. And and so we're thinking about those mouthwatering moments and how can we accomplish them by using just vegetables. So I can give you a few examples, but we yeah, please. we have these golden oyster uh, mushrooms. We roast them in the oven. We make a, a stock of kombu and mushrooms, mm. and then we, we glaze them and we roast them deeper. And so that stock really caramelizes around the mushrooms. Mm. And then in the end, we have this, we make this uh, from pine needles. We make this dehydrated pine needle mushroom powder that then we dust over it in the end. And so, you know, so it's like caramelized on the outside, soft inside and juicy. And uh, I mean, the palate is massive if you think about anything that grows 
And so we want to create a restaurant that meat eater will be blown away by eating vegetables. Daniel, you are obviously not just a professional chef, but one of the greatest on the planet. So forgive me for this question because it's going to be a bit ignorant. My feeling is that cooking meat actually is easier. So for example, when I need to put quick dinner together, I'll just get some chicken and roast it, or I'll I'll get a steak and grill it for you know f- f- four or five minutes aside, and that's dinner. Is there some is there truth to that idea that actually, when you eliminate meat and animal products from your repertoire, it's actually much harder and more time consuming? I think I've always felt this way that to really see the creativity of a chef is by watching them work with vegetables. Hmm. If you have a carrot and you want to make that into a meal, it's not so clear what direction you're going to go. It definitely requires more thought, more preparation, more organization, and then more time in the kitchen. And uh, time is almost a new ingredient. Mm. But of course, it's about deliciousness in the end. I I believe that if the meal is delicious, we don't need to worry about it. I think people will buy into it. But I think if we really want to push the envelope, this is the place where we have to do it. Um, you are not just a chef. You are also the CEO. You run a business. There are people who depend on you. There are people whose livelihoods depend on the success of you and your business. And it's a lot of pressure to carry on anyone's shoulders. Are you nervous about about what you're doing? I think you're hitting a very important point and one that does bring some anxiety because this is our livelihood, many people's livelihoods. I don't know if it would have been possible to make this change the way the restaurant was operating before where every night, seven days a week, the restaurant was sold out. There was never an empty seat. We had 250 people just in one restaurant. To make changes like that would have been so disruptive, more scary. Yeah. And in a way, I am sort of mid-career. <laughs> I've achieved everything more than I ever thought I could. And I couldn't keep doing the same thing for the next 25 years. Yeah. I mean, how amazing is this? Like having the opportunity, having the platform and having the name and the experience and the know-how, but being able to start brand new, you know, life is a great adventure or nothing at all. And so that's uh, what I'm really excited about um, in this next chapter uh, of my career. Um, You dropped out of school at 14. You left home at 15. You were a dad at 18. Yes. You were working in kitchens in your 20s. Your career as a cyclist was kind of over. Not a lot of people would have bet on your succeeding. Not a lot of people would have looked at you at 21 and said, this kid is going places. But you achieved the highest levels of success in the culinary world. It's quite amazing. It's like a movie. Do you ever reflect on that and think, wow? You know, there was... I went to school in Zurich, and at one time I was sent home because uh, in the art class we were asked to uh, draw a house. And I told the teacher that 
the paper isn't big enough for the house I want to draw, that I need a bigger paper. And so the teacher said, no, you're not going to get a bigger paper. Why can't you just be like everyone else? And so then I drew a house four times the size of the paper over the table and everything. The teacher got so angry and sent me home from school. And then I had to go to like, uh, to go to therapy. And uh, I met this most amazing uh, woman. I was probably 10 years, 11 years old. The first time I was there, she said, oh, you know, what happened in school? So I, I told the whole story and she was so upset with the teacher. And we went to the art store, we got the biggest piece of paper and all kinds of paint. And we drew like a 12 foot house. And she said, you know, don't ever let anyone tell you there isn't enough, big enough paper. And so I think from that moment on, I always knew that there was something bigger and something more and you could always reach higher than what people expect or what people think. And in a way that has given me like a fuel to my inspiration and my energy. Daniel, when you think about your journey and all the things you've achieved and where you're heading, because it's certainly not over and in some ways just starting out again, how much of your success do you attribute to how hard you worked and how well you did it? And how much do you think has to do with random chance and, and luck? I think so much of random chance and luck, I've been extremely blessed. Meeting incredible people at certain times, I have been willing to take risks for sure. You know, I think cycling has taught me to be comfortable in the uncomfortable and to go the extra mile. And uh, anyone who knows me uh, knows that I'm willing to, you know, dig really deep to achieve certain things. There's a, I can't remember where I read it, but it was um, an article about you and you kept using the word passion in this interview. And passion is, uh, you know, passion is this great word. You know, we're passionate about, like, I'm passionate about what I do. You're passionate about what you do. But then you explain that actually in German, which is your mother tongue, the word is Leidenschaft. And it actually means something slightly <laughs> different. That, that Leidenschaft requires a certain kind of suffering. And that that's how you describe the way you think of passion and your approach to passion. Yeah, I think, you know, you know, the German language is known for uh, the long words, yeah. often pretty precise. And yeah, the word in German for passion is Leidenschaft. Leiden means suffering and, and Schaft is sort of like the act of suffering or the willing uh, to suffer for something. And I think it's actually uh, very accurate to the way I see passion you really have to be deeply committed when you're passionate. And, and it's not a hobby. Uh, passion is really when you really want to dig deep. And uh, it's your life and blood and you're willing to do anything for it. Yeah. 
That's Daniel Hume, owner and chef at 11 Madison Park. By the way, during the pandemic, the restaurant developed a takeout option, kind of a prepared meal kit they call 11 Madison Park at home. And for the time being, they say they'll keep it up even after they reopen because it's in line with Daniel's vision of food as nurture. Each purchase of a meal kit will pay for another 10 meals distributed to neighbors in need in New York City. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show this week. If you're not a subscriber, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to write to us, our email address is hibt at npr.org. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at How I Built This or at Guy Raz. And on Instagram, you can follow at How I Built This NPR or my account at Guy.Raz. This episode was produced by Casey Herman with music composed by Ramtin Arablui. Thanks also to Janet Ujung Lee, Liz Metzger, Farah Safari, Dareth Gales, Julia Carney, Neva Grant, and Jeff Rogers. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This. This is NPR. We live in a world, a country, and a moment in time where there's so much important news, and it is constantly changing. That's why Up First is here for you. It's NPR's daily morning news podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can start your day informed. Listen to Up First on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts.